This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 33 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, South Africa's leading social media lawyer explains why fake news has been exploding in the coronavirus crisis. The chairman of a major logistics and big retail business explains why lockdowns level four needs to be dropped and urgently. Barlow World uses COVID-19 to try pull out of a 5.35 billion rand potentially life-saving deal for Tongat Hewlett. There's worrying news from New York where previously rare coronavirus-related Kawasaki disease is now hitting children. And our partners at Bloomberg argue that the world needs a probe into U.S. President Donald Trump's often stated theory that COVID-19 began in a Wuhan lab. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, confirmed coronavirus cases in South Africa hit a record of 698, the most ever for one day on Tuesday, surpassing the previous peak of 663 set on Friday. That pushed the total cases in the country to over 11,000, with 54% of them in the Western Cape province. No new deaths were reported on Tuesday, however. Total mortalities are at 206. 13,600 new tests were conducted on the day, taking the total there to just under 370,000 and a positive-to-test ratio of 3%. Internationally, there were 4.3 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 by Tuesday evening, with just under 290,000 mortalities. The UK recorded 627 new deaths on the day, the most in the world, surpassing the 442 of the United States. Brazil is the first major southern hemisphere country to emerge as a hotspot, with 353 deaths on Tuesday, the third highest of any country on earth, taking total mortalities there to just under 12,000. South Africa's most famous entrepreneurial export, Elon Musk, has broken ranks with a mostly compliant U.S. business sector by rebooting his Tesla Motors factory in California in defiance of lockdown rules. In a tweet on Monday, Musk said Tesla is restarting production of its sole U.S. plant, quote, against Alameda County rules. I will be on the line with everyone else. If anyone is arrested, I ask that it be only me, unquote. The factory in Fremont, California, builds Tesla's fast-selling Model 3. It employs 10,000 people. After initially balking at the local county's order for non-essential businesses like Tesla to close, the company complied on March the 23rd. Its decision to reopen follows increasingly strong actions by Musk, including the filing of a lawsuit in the federal court asking a judge to allow Tesla to reopen the factory, arguing that the Alameda County had overstepped its power. 
Although there have been arrests of primarily small business owners for defying lockdown laws in the United States, including a beauty salon owner in Texas, no corporate leader anywhere near Musk's status has openly defied the regulations. Embattled Tongart Hewlett has been thrown a COVID-19 curveball by Barlow World, the company which agreed at the end of February to pay 5.35 billion rand for Tongart's starch business. Barlow's has declared a material adverse change as a result of the impact of the virus-related lockdown and wants to either cancel the deal or pay a lower price. The cash that Tongart was supposed to receive had been earmarked for repaying almost half of its heavy debt burden. More in this episode from Tongart's chief executive, Gavin Hudson, on what this means for the company and, in a broader sense, for other businesses who also concluded pre-lockdown transactions. The Wuhan Institute of Virology which has been continuously accused of creating COVID-19 by U.S. President Donald Trump, today explained its role in the pandemic via an interview with its deputy director in the Beijing-based Technology Daily. Mr. Guan Wuxang said the laboratory, which has studied coronaviruses for a decade, began research into COVID-19 on the 30th of December after receiving samples of a pneumonia of an unknown cause from the Wuhan Jin Yin Yan Hospital. He said the lab obtained the whole genome sequence, which showed it to be a coronavirus by January the 11th, and then immediately submitted this to the World Health Organization. The deputy director said that together with the China National Biotech Group, the Wuhan lab, has developed a COVID-19 vaccine, which entered clinical trials on the 12th of April. More on that story coming up in this episode. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Emma Sadler is one of the better-known lawyers in South Africa. She specialises in digital law. We see your name everywhere. It's clearly a smart focus to be in right now. Yeah, I could never have foreseen it going this way. Well, in the days where I was able to speak at schools, the kids would ask me afterwards, you know, how did you know you wanted to be a social media lawyer? And I had to laugh at them and say that when I was at school, there was no such thing as social media. But even this time last year, I couldn't have foreseen the kinds of issues that we're seeing now on social media during this pandemic. Before we go into the pandemic itself, but the explosion of social media has really brought all kinds of new questions to society and uh, presumably because law regulates society to your area. Yeah, I think the main thing and the big transition in my career was when I was at Weber Wenzel with the likes of the brilliant Dario Milo. I was really focusing on media law generally because those were the people who had the power to speak to a lot of people at one time. So it was people like you. It was people in the media business, people who were writing articles for the front page of the newspaper. And then I think we can't underestimate or forget just how quickly this huge digital revolution happened where suddenly every single person with an internet connection became a publisher. And in South Africa, as soon as content has been seen by one other person, so it doesn't matter whether you're speaking on a WhatsApp group to three people or on Twitter to three million people, we treat that content as if you'd published it on the front page of the newspaper. And that means that 
everybody needs to have a pretty good working understanding about what the laws are. Where does the limit lie to the right to freedom of expression? And I think that there's a lot of ignorance still, even though a lot of us have had this platform, this voice on social media for, I'd say, about a decade now. There's still a lot of ignorance. You know, even with this new fake news offense that came out, all the freedom of speech fundamentalists were up in arms. But how is freedom of speech dead? No. It's not dead, but, you know, the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of expression, while being a cornerstone to our democracy is not an absolute right. How does it work? Basically, it is an offense that was created under the regulations in the Disaster Management Act. And I think a lot of people, that was one of the things that got sort of the freedom of speech absolutists upset was how did this law suddenly overnight exist? Because normally, if you follow any kind of new legislation, then it goes through a very long legislative process. You know, I mean, we're still waiting for the data protection laws to be properly effective in South Africa. It can take a very, very long time. And suddenly what happened is that this offence was created. Now, the Disaster Management Act allows for new offences to be created if they are going to be necessary, those offences, to stop the escalation of the disaster. And basically what this criminal offence says is that if you spread information with the intention to deceive around COVID, then you can be prosecuted, found guilty of a criminal offence and sentenced up to six months in prison and or a fine. Now, it's a little bit more long-winded than that, but that's the punchline, is that if you share information, firstly with the intention to deceive, and that's a very important one, because if you're just sharing stuff and you aren't actually intending to deceive, you can't be prosecuted. And it has to relate to COVID. It's not all fake news. It's got to do with COVID, government's actions in response to COVID, um, and the COVID status of a person. And we've seen some arrests, Alec, with this um, new criminal offence. Most famous for me was the guy, I call him the earbud guy, Stephen Birch, who basically released this video, which, which went so viral so quickly, which basically said that if you submit to government testing, you will be contaminated with the virus because all the test kits were contaminated. He was arrested and uh, he'll be back in court in July. Wow. Today I was sent a... Uh, a WhatsApp video of traffic cops arresting a little boy. didn't look like he was more than five years old at, in his home, in a gated estate. The father went and grabbed his son, so they arrested the father. Uh, now, I don't know if this is fake news. It's, I'm obviously very uh, tempted to push this out onto social media because it does look like complete abuse of power. But if, for instance, somebody had staged it and I put that out onto social media, then I would be distributing fake news. You know, it's, 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 it's a closer call than that. The first is that it sounds utterly outrageous. I haven't seen the video. Um, but the age of criminal capacity in South Africa is 14. Um, under the age of 10, you cannot be, you cannot be arrested for a criminal offense. Uh, the parents, maybe, depending on what the crime is that has been committed. But under the age of 10 in South Africa, under our Child Justice Act, you cannot commit a criminal offense. Between the ages of 10 and 14, the law is not quite sure, so they look at that child, how educated is the child, how mature is the child, how, how um, should they know the difference between right and wrong? What kind of family do they come from? What kind of school do they go to? Um, from the age of 14, it's not a question. Everybody has criminal capacity. Um, and why that becomes such a big issue in my area of law is that where a teenager, for example, is involved in spreading fake news or involved in sexting, um, which is dealt with as the distribution of child pornography in South Africa, or where they have um, 
seriously offended somebody's dignity and it's crimen inuria, maybe that's cyberbullying or maybe it's the distribution of naked pictures without consent, then we're actually seeing criminal charges being brought against teenagers. So I do think it's very um, unlikely that there was actually an arrest taking place because, as I say, you cannot arrest somebody under the age of 10. But I think provided we act as responsible social media users, um, you know, for me at the moment, because there is just so much fake news going around, I've got this mantra that fake news stops with me. And I presume that every single thing I receive is fake until I can prove that it's true. Now, where you're dealing with a video, if the evidence is very obviously in the video, then I'm happy for people to share it because it's not just a, a picture in a vacuum with some blurb, which could be completely false. Um, so I think that the presumption must be that everything is untrue. If you're not sure, then do your own investigations. Check if the main news sites are carrying the story. Um, if you get one of these voice notes without a source, my auntie's brother's sister's new best friend is a senior virologist at this place, um, but keep it on the down low, then you've just got to presume that that's rubbish. Um, and then I think that that where there is a source – Check to see if that source is saying anything. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, there was this uh, news that um, a recipient, a scientist in Japan, a recipient of a Nobel Prize, was saying that if this virus hadn't been created in a laboratory, then he'll return his, his Nobel Prize. And you would go to his social media channels and see if he's responding to it. And very quickly, uh, it, that, that, that was debunked as fake news. So I really think the mantra must be everything you receive is fake until you've gone and investigated and proved that it's true. Now, I don't think you need to do a proper scientific evaluation, um, but I do think that just some general Googling is the very, the very low base, I think, that is required. I think also we must remember, Alec, that where we're talking about an intention to deceive with fake news, we have to remember the principle in South Africa of dolus eventualis. Now, if you followed the Oscar Pistorius case with any kind of interest, you'll remember it's this concept that basically allows for indirect intent. It's where you reconcile yourself to a possible outcome and proceed in the same way. So, you know, maybe I receive this WhatsApp and it maybe it looks a bit too good to be true or so utterly outrageous. And I think, oh, well, it might be true. It might not be. But let me just forward it anyway. Um, that could constitute the reckless disregard for the truth and therefore perhaps qualify as dolus eventualis in this analysis of intention to deceive. We we sit. Um, with a, a big website like Biz News that gets a million people coming to it every month, we get an enormous amount of people wanting to help, or they think they're helping. But often they're sending us stuff that on a little bit of investigation is shown to be fake. What's the message to them, to to people who who I don't think most humans want to deceive everyone else, but by the same token, they also seem to like quite a bit of drama. So they'll pick up something recently, the Italian story, I'm sure you saw that, where uh, there was a, a, an allegation that a lot of the deaths in Italy were actually not caused by COVID-19, but by something else. How can one pass on some suggestions? Mm. So as I say, I think the first must be presume everything is untrue until you can prove that it is true, then I think that you should probably invest some, investigate some of these resources out there. So the big ones in South Africa are Africa Check, which is super, uh, the real 411. Um, there's a WhatsApp service called What's Crap, which is great. You um, can subscribe to the service and they send you a voice note with the main uh, fake news stories. Um, I think we've also seen 
you know, and it's, it's not so, it's not so opposite for the, for the website contributions, but we've seen some technological introductions as well. So for example, Facebook, which owns WhatsApp, I don't know if you've noticed, Alec, but they've introduced this technological response to fake news where you can only forward a message to one contact at a time. Or if it's an image, you can only forward it to five people at a time, whereas before you could forward to hundreds of people at a time. And that really is an attempt to slow down the spread of fake news. And it's been incredibly effective. Um, you know, I don't know how accurate the statistics are, but the articles I'm reading at the moment is that there's been an 80 percent decrease in the transmission of fake news as a result of these technological interventions, because as a recipient of um, a piece of uh, news or a piece of uh, content, I have to one by one go and send it to each of these people instead of just doing a long broadcast list. And that kind of response is really helping as well. I had a fascinating uh, insight yesterday with Professor Michael Levitt, who's a Nobel Prize winner, uh, the only living South African uh, scientist who won a Nobel Prize. And his insight about Twitter is he said that it is a, it's the greatest discussion forum that he's come across since he was at Cambridge where there were more than two dozen Nobel Prize winners in the unit that he, he comes from, which puts the other side of the story to it. If he's right, and I'm sure he is, Twitter, social media actually has got an enormous amount of good. But how does one determine, and you must come across these all the time, what you can believe and what you shouldn't be. <laughs> and then, and then the, the bigger problem, Alec, I suppose, is that you, you can get these echo chambers because it doesn't matter what crazy view you might have, you'll find people online with the same views, <laughs> which normalizes maybe a crazy view and then it doesn't feel so crazy anymore. You know, it's interesting that Michael said that because I find that there's more hate on Twitter than on some of the other public platforms. And for me, the, the obvious reason for that is that Twitter, whilst maybe not encouraging anonymity, certainly allows it. Whereas a platform which is much more visual, like Instagram, for example, it really forces people to be who they are because people share photographs. And I do think that the root of all bullying on social media is anonymity. Um, and it's just a bit of an aside because I, it is one of my bugbears at the moment is how slow these international companies are to hand over identifying information where there's been a very obvious abuse of their platforms, whether that's child pornography, child sexual abuse images, misappropriation of somebody's image or face or name or identity. Um, and I think that these companies should be playing ball with us a lot more. And it's been an interesting um, extension of COVID. Uh, and, and the effect of COVID is that these companies are and I'm talking really about the three big companies, um, Facebook, which owns WhatsApp and Instagram, Alphabet, which owns Google and YouTube and Twitter. We are seeing them taking a bit more responsibility for what's on their platform. And we are seeing these companies removing quite obvious fake news quite quickly. The big news story of the last week on fake news was Plandemic, that absurd YouTube video. I'm not sure if you watched it. But it was getting literally, I think, sort, I thought the last I saw it had 700,000 views in a couple of hours. Um, and YouTube decided to take it down. And all of the big platforms have actually been actively playing a role much more aggressively than we've seen in the past in making sure and actually editing, taking editorial control over the content that they're hosting um, and making sure that where there is obvious fake news, they're taking steps to remove that fake news. They've also, most of them, certainly on Facebook and Instagram, at the top an alert button with a tab for COVID-19 information. 
So we are seeing this little trend that the social media companies are taking to be a little bit more responsible. Just to close off on the data protection laws, you say that they have stalled or they certainly haven't gone through as quickly as they would. How are they going to very briefly change the world? We hear so much about how COVID-19 is going to change the world, but one would presume that the data protection laws where we are behind other countries uh, would also have that impact. Yeah, we're so behind. And it's such a shame we're so behind, Alec, because we were ready. You know, the laws have been around for a long time, at least the draft legislation. Um, and it was signed into, uh, signed into law a long time ago, you know, and every year I write opinions about data protection saying we anticipate an effective date at the end of this year. And I think I've been writing them for about eight years along those lines. They're all the talk was that on the 1st of April, um, that's just been, so the 1st of April 2020, that President Ramaphosa would sign the, uh, sign the law into uh, because we're waiting for regulations and the formation of the information regulator, etc., um, w- w- and make it effective, and then there would be one year for compliance. And obviously, the president has much bigger issues on his plate at the moment than data protection. But it is something that we should be thinking about because you know it's not just what the law requires; it's actually best practice and what people do with our personal information in this world where we're all living online so much more. And I think where people are looking at data protection in the context of COVID-19, Alec, is around the, the tracing technology that government says it's using. Um, and we've seen a lot of international news stories about these apps that um, are, people are voluntarily downloading and, and using to, to, to basically more effectively contact trace to make sure that if you have come into conflict with somebody, into contact with somebody who has the virus, uh, that you get notified. And um, under our data protection laws, uh, government's use of this location-based information um, would be much, much more regulated. Um, at the moment, it seems to be a sort of an, a, a database which is only accessed in the case of a positive testing. But the idea that Big Brother has access to our location at all times is making privacy advocates feeling, feel very uncomfortable. Um, and it, it's not a sort of opt-in, opt-out uh, method, like in some countries, uh, they are using that information. And in terms of the, the law, they, they are allowed to use that information. I would say it's probably a valid restriction um, of, our, of our democratic rights, but, but it's just something that could so easily be abused, Alec. I think it's something that, that all privacy advocates are feeling a bit nervous of. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Mike Hankinson is the chairman of Grindrod and of SPA. He's also non-executive director of Grindrod Shipping. So a man uh, who's got his finger on the pulse of what's happening in the real economy. Mike, the lockdown, uh, we know that it's everybody supported it to begin with, pretty much everybody in South Africa. But it does seem to be getting to a point where many now feel it's reached its sell-by date and time to maybe accelerate the opening of the economy. We heard from Business for South Africa. They would love to see a decline to level two. I'm exactly the same. I think business generally feels that way. We in all the businesses are hoping that we'll get to level two sooner rather than later. And I'm not talking about level three. I'm talking about level two, which is, I think, what Martin Kingston Business Unity is talking about. We support totally what Cyril Ramaphosa did. And I think the lockdown was great for all of us. But it's having a severe impact on business. And my concern, to be quite honest, is that we as a country have struggled to create jobs in the last 10 years. 
government has found it difficult. Business has found it difficult. We just have not met the target of creating jobs. But right now, we have the potential of losing a huge number of jobs. And I don't know if that gap between the ability to create jobs and the ease in which they can be lost is really understood. And that's really what concerns me. I think we, we, for the first five or six weeks, have struggled through and didn't done quite well. But I think many businesses are getting to the point now where they have to release people to be able to survive. And that's the sad part of it. Let's just start with SPA if we can, because it's, it's there are two sides to this coin. The one side is the being in the retail industry, people have still been shopping. They've still been buying from SPA. And have you managed to continue to distribute and, and keep your, your franchisees uh, uh, fully supplied there? That's the first point. But the second point, and the much more worrying one, is uh, we hear about increases in looting, in robberies, in that ugly side of society when people do get hungry and, and start getting desperate. Could you address both of those for us and just tell us what hey, you look, want? From a SPA point of view, we we one of the lucky organizations that have continued during this lockdown. And we excited with the culture that we have at SPA, the ability that we've had to meet customers' needs, to be specific. We've been very excited and very lucky with SPA. It's done well. We comfortable with it. Yes, there's stresses and strains in terms of obtaining some product through the pipeline, but in general terms, it's performed well. We obviously uncomfortable about cigarettes. We're uncomfortable about alcohol. We're uncomfortable about HMR, but that's small in comparison to so many other businesses who just haven't managed to operate. From a looting, your second question, from a looting point of view, yes, we are most concerned. I think everybody that knows South Africa is aware that we have and will have more hungry individuals as the weeks and day, days and weeks go by. And I think that's really the issue, that uh, we, there is a risk. There is a high risk, and um, that's where we are. So we have to do everything we can. Are you seeing- um, but the sooner we can get back to work, sooner we can get those people that, that normally earn today to be able to eat tomorrow or at least next week can get back to work, the better. Mike, what about the shipping industry? Grindrod is well known in South Africa as the leading shipping company. You did spin off your shipping company to uh, a NASDAQ listing. I see the share price there has been under pressure, but what's going on in that sector? Alec, the, there are two aspects of that. The dry cargo that we're involved with is uh, is difficult. Um, the tankers, because of the, the oil price, is doing quite well. Those tankers are being used in many cases for storage. So the rates have gone exceptionally well in the last couple of weeks. But the problem really is that the supply chain globally has been blocked, or let me say it's been disrupted. And that's in all ports of the world. And as you know, outside Durban Harbour, there are 25 ships at least waiting to to enter. And even from a Grinrod point of view, the containers that we normally store are normally empty containers because our job is not to store full containers, it's to store empty containers, to move them from A to B. We have 95% of our containers in our warehouses or on our facilities as full, and only 5% are empty. Plus, those facilities are almost at their limit. We have not been able to deliver, as you can imagine, to many organizations 
that have been closed during this lockdown period. So this disruption isn't good for us and will take weeks to clear. Just to add to that, the mines have open production at 50% capacity. But last count, yesterday morning, there were 350 trucks at the Mozambique border waiting to get through to Maputo to offload onto ships because of the requirements at the border posts. That is an issue. So, yeah, I think what what I'm saying is that the supply chain is severely disrupted and it will take time to to resolve. South Africa is an open economy. 50% of our GDP is either imports or exports. If you were to estimate from a Grindrod point of view and Grindrod shipping as well, how much of that has disappeared during lockdown? Look, I can't give you a number other than I will tell you that ports like Wolfus Bay and Maputa have taken on and grabbed opportunities. They have taken into their ports ships that normally would not go into their ports, would normally come to Cape Town um, or Durban. And one hopes that that business that has been diverted will not be lost for a longer period of time. It could be. Once customers start finding that there are other options and other routes, they do explore those. So it's difficult to know how much will be lost, but definitely at this point in time, some has been lost. And Mozambique, what's happening there? You you do have an investment in that country? We do. We do have an investment. It is performing. They have the same problems as we have, but they're trying to get back to normality. And as we say, we are trying to get um, goods through our borders into Maputo. There have been some problems up north. You're aware that there's a gas opportunity up north in in Mozambique, but uh, that's been obviously hit by the fuel price. It's been hit by COVID. They've had a COVID infection in that area. Also been hit by a terrorist issue. So uh, that's uh, going through some difficult times, but one expects it to come back. It is seen to be one of the investment opportunities of Mozambique into the future. Mike, you've been around a long time in this business environment. I presume you've never seen anything quite like what we're going through at the moment. But drawing on years of experience, how much longer can this economy take the kind of lockdown that we're in? Alec, I think South Africans uh, can last. We've been through difficult times before. And we'll go through difficult times into the future. But to give you a direct answer, I will say to you, the sooner we can release the pressures of the lockdown and get to a level two or lower, accepting that we will all have to be adopting social distancing, wearing masks, doing the things that we've all been taught to do over the last five, six weeks. We'll have to do that. We'll have to do that probably for the rest of this year and maybe even sometime into next year. But taking that into account and bearing in mind that we're saying we need social distancing, the sooner we can get back to business, uh, the better. Otherwise, I really am concerned that uh, we will lose more jobs than the country can afford, and we cannot afford to lose anyway. You do, however, as a business person, always have to be looking for opportunities. Do you see much in this? Alec, it is quite interesting. There was a podcast, a webinar that I listened to the other day, and it was, I think, one of yours, if I remember correctly. And there was an interesting comment from, from one of the participants saying that one needs to look 
at the business with a clean piece of paper. What are the opportunities out there? What do you, what should you be doing differently? And I would guess that every business has exactly that opportunity. There are opportunities out there. We're going to be forced to take those opportunities. Whereas in the past, it's not been such an issue. Business has carried on. We've made profits. We've paid dividends. But I think there are many businesses that are going to have to look for those new opportunities. And absolutely, there are many out there. The, the biggest issue is to try and find them. But uh, the world is changing, and we all know that things can happen. We, who would have guessed that we would have had these uh, webinars and seminars, board meetings, etc., online just six weeks ago the way we are having them today? You'd never have guessed it. So things are changing and changing quickly. How do you get to those opportunities, though? Is there a process? I don't know if there's a process as much as um, – we all have to find that opportunity. When one's pushed, pushed into a corner, you've got to think out the box. And there are many people that are starting to think out the box. Many little restauranteurs that, that a little while ago were not delivering to home are now delivering to home because they've been forced into it. Because, yes, that opportunity has arisen and they've taken that opportunity. And I mean, that is a, is a particular example. And I think many of those restaurants will carry on delivering to home after this. Uh, they will not go back to only serving in a restaurant, especially if that restaurant can only be uh, occupied to 50% full. So I think we, we forced, we forced, we have to make a plan. We have to, to find other ways of creating business, of finding business, of doing business. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Gavin Hudson is the chief executive of Tonga Hewlett and a man who's had his hands full over the past few months since he took over there, but even fuller today, uh, Gavin, with the announcement that you put out to say that the life-saving, perhaps, transaction that you've done with Barlow World was announced on the 28th of February for the sale of the starch business of 5.35 billion rands now might be in jeopardy because of COVID-19. Just take us through that, because from reading the sense report, there was an auction process. Barlow World won the auction process. This goes back quite a few months. Are they now wanting to renege on the deal? Uh, hi, hi, Alec, and thank, thanks for having me on the show and the opportunity to chat. You know, I certainly uh, look forward to the time. Yeah, I mean, it has been, it's been an interesting year as, uh, on many fronts. Uh, we've we've worked hard on on this specific deal with Barlow World. I mean, our ambition has never been to break up Tongard Hewlett. Uh, you know, we've always looked at um, an opportunity to reduce our our, our debt. <clears throat> as you know, we have significant debt in the business, and our survival as a company is really to to deleverage as best we can. Uh, you know, we shook hands. Uh, we, we we signed the SPA, uh, and for all intents of purpose, you know, the the deal is done. Uh, you know outside of, of Compco uh, Competitions Commission approval, which we've been working on, uh, you know, aggressively to, to conclude the deal. And our, our ambition was to have the deal sort of finalised sort of in, 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 in August. Uh, you know, to be honest, I think these are unprecedented times, Alec. You know, I think all of us are, are seeing the impact of, of COVID-19 and, and, and the subsequent lockdown in South Africa. My, my personal view is Barlow World, you know, are exercising their right. Uh, we disagree, I think, in terms of the fact that they have called a material adverse change 
for 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 the full year. We believe it's a it's a little bit premature considering it's it's one month into the the new financial year, which makes it interesting. And we also believe that you know we have all the information available to ourselves, which we have modelled in um, a, a hell of a lot of detail. To to be frank, and uh, we've reached out to them and and suggested that we work with Barlow to support or augment their modelling processes and to provide, I suppose, more accurate and updated information to assist, to ensure that they also see that uh, we don't believe there is a, a Mac event. This is really strange, though, because as far as shareholders and outside parties are concerned, and presumably the people who actually work in the starch division, of which there are many thousands, the deal was done on the 28th of February. You sh- as you say, you shook hands. It was announced in the media. If this deal can be reversed, it would suggest that any other transactions that were done at that stage, maybe the new car I bought, can also be reversed. (laughs) These are confusing times, I know, but surely there are certain things that you've got to stick with. Obviously, I mean, this this MAC process was included in the share purchase agreement at the time of signing. And I think with larger transactions that take a long time to conclude, you know, it could be anything between four and six or eight months, depending on competition commission approval. It's to protect the the purchaser that there isn't a material adverse change in the organization that will impact what they were initially buying, I suppose, and by the way, exercising their right in terms of this. point is, it seems very premature. And, you know, for somebody that was, was really uh, committed to to purchasing uh, a fantastic business, by the way. It does feel that uh, it, the, the messaging just seems a bit odd at the moment. It is a, a business that delivers $4 billion in revenues, nearly $800 million in EBITDA, after tax, 460 million rands. If, however, the transaction does not go through, would this have an impact on the sustainability of Tongot, given that that $5 billion was going to be used to repay debt? It certainly puts us on another trajectory completely. You know, we need to consider plan B and plan C in terms of how we keep Tongot. I'm very optimistic. First of all, I'm optimistic that the deal will go ahead. You know, I believe our modeling is sound and I believe that, you know, we don't have a Mac event at the moment. But, uh, you know, if, if, if we have to keep the, the starch business, then we will make sure that this, this business continues. You know, we will need to go back to our, our lenders, uh, our borrowers. Uh, we potentially would have to renegotiate some of the terms in terms of our debt. And at the same time, you know, we continue um, streamlining our business, as you may be aware of. We've improved our cash flow this year of by over a billion rand in, in less than nine months. And our commitment is to improve our cash flow by three billion rand by the end of this financial year that we're in at the moment. So we've made significant progress in terms of streamlining this business and making it a far more efficient business. We seem to have a good crop in our sugar business. We continue focusing on our property portfolio that we have a a really great uh, portfolio of premium property on the KZN North Coast. So there are many moving parts in terms of how we're viewing the business. We're not going to roll over. Certainly, I'm not going to roll over my management team. I'm not going to roll over uh, should we have to keep the starch business. I think we just need to knuckle down and make the business work either way. So I remain optimistic. What is this material adverse change or MAC that you've referred to? We've heard of force majeure. Is it something similar? What it suggests, uh, in the way I understand it, I'm not an expert. I've actually got uh, my legal counsel tonight for a full session. But but I think the way generally it works is if you have a business that, that has um, multiple customers, and when you sell one business to, to the purchaser, 
they buy the business as a going concern. And if something changes within that business from the time you sign the deal until transfer, you know, essentially takes place until you've cleared all the, the hurdles. If, for example, a massive customer decided to leave or there was a change in supply or people started importing product versus buying from yourself directly, well, one would call that a material adverse change in the organization. Now, obviously, with COVID-19 coming along and it has impacted many businesses, I mean, ours is just one of them. I suppose Barlow World are, are looking at this and saying there's going to be a material change in terms of the EBITDA that your business will generate. In, in terms of ours, it's a reduction of 17.5% on EBITDA, bearing in mind it's a forward-looking calculation. So by full year 2021, we need to be 17.5% down on EBITDA versus our financial year 20. So it becomes quite complex when you're calculating it and, um, and, and how you view all the, the, the various working parts as to getting to, so is it a material change or not? This is the crux of, of the discussion we're going to have. Gavin, we're seeing wider implications of this, though. Many companies are now trying to get out of their leases because they've realized you don't need a big office anymore. You can send people to work from home and thus cut back on the office accommodations. There would be others who were purchasing uh, companies, or like Barlow World, who are now seeing that the economy is in a different place, so maybe they can get a discount. Is this a discussion to renegotiate the price, or is it one for outright cancellation of the deal? Uh, there's actually been no discussion, Alec, uh, to date. I have no indication as to what the preferred outcome of, of this process will be. You know, I assume in the days to come we will we will start getting engaged. But you know, to be fair to to the CEO of Barlow World, on on each engagement I've had uh, with him, he rem- has remained uh, has has been committed to the deal, and and his board, you know, via himself has has been committed to the to the deal. So I've got no reason. To believe that they're not committed to the deal, you know, the reason to to calling the Mac so early is still a, a bit of a mystery to me. Inside COVID nineteen from Biz News. For a long time, the only reassuring thing about COVID-19 was that it did not seem to affect children much. Well, that idea is now being challenged as a new COVID-19-related illness is beginning to appear in children. A number of cases have been seen around the world with a similar cluster of symptoms from a rare condition called Kawasaki disease. Bloomberg's Jason Gale says the good news, it's easy to treat and parents can spot the rather obvious symptoms. COVID-19 seems to occur less frequently among children and they rarely get severely sick from it. But the risk for children isn't zero. In fact, in Europe and now in the United States, critically ill kids have been ending up in intensive care units with shock-like symptoms. It's yet another mysterious dimension of a disease we only heard about four months ago. Stephen Powers is National Medical Director for England in the National Health Service. He told reporters recently that these uncommon, life-threatening symptoms resemble Kawasaki disease, a rare childhood illness. We have become aware in the last few days uh, of reports of severe illness in children, which might be a Kawasaki-like disease. So Kawasaki disease is a very rare inflammatory condition that occurs in children. Uh, The the cause is is not often known. Kawasaki disease is characterized by inflammation of blood vessels throughout the body. 
It's the leading cause of acquired heart disease in American children. But with effective treatment, only a small percentage of patients is left with lasting coronary artery damage. On Wednesday last week in the Lancet Medical Journal, doctors in England described an unprecedented cluster of eight children with something resembling the condition. One patient, a 14-year-old, needed life support, but tragically died from a stroke. New York has had at least 73 similar paediatric patients, three of them fatal. France and Italy have had cases too. This is something that is appearing in cities around the globe now that have been heavily impacted by COVID-19 disease in the adult population. That's Professor Jane Burns. She's one of the world's top experts on Kawasaki disease and leads a research center dedicated to studying it at the University of California, San Diego. She's seen thousands of cases over 35 years, and the Rady Children's Hospital, where she works, treats 80 to 100 new Kawasaki disease patients each year. Jane has yet to see any of these COVID-19-related cases, but has been following the research closely. So we're getting a picture that this is something that occurs in probably genetically susceptible children as a reaction that involves previous exposure to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And now we're seeing cases in the United States. Jane says these aren't COVID-19 patients, but a majority have the virus or antibodies to the infection. While the cases share some signs and symptoms of Kawasaki disease, the ones that have been described during the pandemic have some additional features. So it's not certain that what they have is Kawasaki. The disease is usually diagnosed in susceptible children by the time they start school. The average age of the patients in England was about nine. I've not seen a case, so let's be clear. (laughs) But um, the descriptions are more than half of them coming in with gastrointestinal symptoms. So vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea. Everybody has fever. So all these presentations are are significant, persistent, high fever. Also, six of the eight children in England were described as being of Afro-Caribbean descent, and five were boys. Jane says one in every 60 children in Japan gets Kawasaki disease, but no atypical cases have been seen there during the pandemic. Even still, she says, there may be genetic, racial and social disparities at play, and these need to be properly investigated. The shock syndrome that these paediatric patients experience is also more severe than what's seen in Kawasaki disease, or KD for short. And they have certain uh, clinical differences in, in the nature of the shock, the way the heart is behaving. But the interesting hypothesis that this raises is that Kawasaki disease may be a syndrome that can actually be triggered in children of different genetic backgrounds by different environmental triggers. So there's an interesting question that perhaps SARS-CoV-2 virus is one of many other agents or just things in the environment that can trigger this syndrome in children who perhaps have a slightly different genetic susceptibility. And 
these children who are now presenting with the shock syndrome and the children who are getting the typical KD in these same communities, maybe these are children who were never going to get Kawasaki disease in their life until they came across this virus that's been unleashed onto the world. Jane says probably about 100 children worldwide have been diagnosed with this syndrome during the pandemic. That compares with some 4 million COVID-19 cases. What's really intriguing to me as a Kawasaki disease researcher is that at the same time these desperately ill children are being seen, there has been a dramatic uptick in these same communities of children with typical Kawasaki disease. Whatever it is behind this syndrome that's sometimes leading to desperate cardiovascular collapse, the affected children are responding to the same treatment used for Kawasaki disease. Jane says patients can usually be cured in a matter of days with IV infusions of a blood-based therapy called immunoglobulin, but they need to get it within their first week of illness. The other good news is that the disease is relatively easy to diagnose. Parents can easily make the diagnosis. You don't have to have gone to medical school. It's fever, bloodshot eyes, red lips and tongue, swollen hands and feet, and red palms and soles. So it, it should be empowering to parents that they can recognize this disease and, and ask for blood testing to support the diagnosis by looking for inflammation. Whatever it is that's causing this new life-threatening illness in children, there's some solace in knowing that it's rare and that it can be easily treated. It's a reminder, though, that we still have a lot to learn about the coronavirus and to reject any invitation to a virus party. Inside COVID-19, Trumpers News. A theory that is still being circulated widely on social media and that some governments have latched onto is that the coronavirus did not originate naturally or from a market in Wuhan, but that it came from a scientific laboratory in China. This theory is also supported by some members of the Trump administration. Bloomberg correspondent Andy Brown tells Carol Masser that President Donald Trump is trying to open Pandora's box and he suggests that there should be an international inquiry into the allegations. The the central idea here is that at the very heart of this global pandemic um, is a mystery. Um, And that mystery, uh, quite simply, is where, where did this virus come from? So we know that the outbreak was in Wuhan in China, and um, scientists are pretty sure that it jumped from bats to humans um, via uh, an, an, another kind of uh, via animals. Um, you know, but um, there are huge gaps in our understanding. Uh, we don't know what kind of animal. We don't know is it a was it a farm animal, a pig, for instance? Was it a wild animal, uh, a pangolin? Um, how did it spread so quickly? Um, could things have been done to to halt it uh, before it it spread widely in Wuhan and then to the rest of the world? Um, and so, you know, in the absence of answers to this, and all we have is, is basically information coming out of China, and much of the world doesn't believe what's coming out of China. We know that there were cover-ups. The Chinese media has reported that 
you know, uh, the Chinese authorities may, may have way low-balled the numbers of infections and deaths in Wuhan. And in the absence of that, you've had all of these conspiracy theories taking root, particularly in the, in the uh, American political right. Uh, and one of these theories is sort of what I call the Pandora's box theory, which is that, you know, it came out of a lab in uh, Wuhan, a, a high-security lab where, they, where they're studying viruses. It was an accident. Um, and just as, you know, uh, Pandora's sort of, you know, reckless curiosity um, led her to open the box and out of, of course, in Greek mythology, out comes sick, all the evils of mankind, sickness and death and poverty and, and, and toil and all the rest of it. Uh, and that, that was exactly the, 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 uh, what happened in, in, in Wuhan, that, that China unleashed all of these terrible evils uh, on on mankind, so you know, and that and that and that, that theory is is widely believed now in in the White House, particularly, you know, um, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, and he he's, he said earlier, you know, there's enormous evidence for this happening. In fact, there's there is very little. In fact, there's no evidence at all that he's been able to produce um, to you know to 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 uh, substantiate. Um, this conspiracy theory. So, you know, right. I mean, it just it just seems like we need a global inquiry, right? Well, I have to say, too, and Andy, one of the things that I found most telling was some of the interviews over the weekend with scientists who said if you look at the virus and you look at the genetic makeup of it, you understand that this was not um, something that was, you know, made in a lab. And so that there's just an overwhelmingly amount of scientific evidence that says, okay, where this came from, but put that aside, in the meantime, you just have these increased tensions and problems, once again, coming from both the U.S. and Chinese sides. And you do wonder what this means going forward for what's already a fraught relationship, right, and, and not a great one. And you do wonder what this means. You open up Pandora's box and and how much worse does it get? And then what are the repercussions in terms of us coming back from this virus on a health you know, basis as well as an economic basis? Right. I mean, we need, yeah, for sure. You know, we, we need answers to this. Um, you know, where, where did this virus come from? Lessons need to be learned. I mean, we, we need to be better prepared for the next one. We're living in an age of pandemics. Um, we need to know, you know, what what should have been done that wasn't done. There are all sorts of, you know, answers that scientists, that, that government officials, that, you know, citizens, we all, need to, we all need answers to these really basic questions. And, you know, and yet uh, it appears that, that, that China is adamantly against anything that looks like an international inquiry. In fact, the Australian Foreign Minister, uh, Marissa Payne, when she suggested it a, a week or so ago, the Chinese ambassador to Canberra, sort of in a rather veiled way, threatened that, threatened, you know, trade sanctions um, against Australia, said, you know, that the Chinese people may not uh, buy, Amer buy Australian beef and wine and so on. Um, you know, so it, it, it's, it's politically almost impossible um, for China to agree to this because, of course, any independent inquiry is likely to start uncovering all kinds of embarrassing details, you know, about, the, about this cover-up uh, that's been widely reported in, in, in Wuhan. And, and in the absence of that, what you have is U.S.-China relations now just plunging to, to the lowest point that they've been since the establishment of, of diplomatic relations. 
has been episode 33 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.